the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, Owen Burke Kennedy and Conor McQuilla of Davy Stockbrokers will join me in the studio to discuss the latest data on the Irish economy and how it might impact on Budget 2020 in October. But first, Peter Hamilton joins me in the studio to run through some of the major business stories of the week. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks, Kieran. Now, we've known for some time that Larry Goodman and his business empire have been doing very well, but we never really had a window into precisely how well in financial terms because uh, largely he operates through unlimited companies. However, in the past uh, number of days, we have gained this window. Um, Tell us about that. That's right. Um, Nine of his companies uh, in this Goodman group made a €170 million profit last year, which went largely untaxed, and I guess we'll come back to that in a moment. Mm. The four of these companies are based in Luxembourg, and they're based there for intergroup financial transactions, so giving loans to to one another and things like that. Between those four companies, they produced profits of €123 million, and again paid almost uh, no tax. So the group appears to be making increasing use of this Luxembourg uh, arrangement, which is is perfectly legal. There's there's no 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 legal no legal questions over that. And um, now, Peter, the uh, Irish Farmers Association have had something to say about this because he's one of the big uh, meat processors in the country, isn't he? He is. He's, he's frequently referred to as a beef baron. Mm. Uh, they they have the uh, the Irish Farmers Association has called for an investigation into prices being fa- paid to farmers for cattle, and its president Joe Healy said that such profits from the Goodman Group shows that he's making millions on the back of beef farmers and he called for the government to take action. Um, Whether that'll lead anywhere, it's difficult to know. But but separately... It might also show that they're poor negotiators. Well, absolutely. Uh, Now, I I suppose they will argue that they've been... that the price of beef has been continuously dropping and with this new Mercosur trade deal uh, that was signed over the weekend... One would have to imagine that, that that is not good news for beef prices. And of course, Larry Goodman is one of the people who may suffer at the hands of that Mercosur trade agreement. But they're in a, they're, they're in a particularly tough spot at the moment. Uh, and separately, they were uh, protesting outside the European of, the European Commission offices in Dublin um, this week. Uh, but so, so look, it, it could well yeah. it could well say that, but they yeah. are in a tough spot. Pascal Donoghue faced some questions on this, didn't he, when he was in front of an Oireachtas committee? He did. Committee a, a series of TDs asked him about it. Uh, he refused to be pressed on the Goodman Group. Uh, He was very careful about his language. However, he did say that revenue would get any resources it needed to investigate any individuals or companies uh, that that, that needed to be investigated. Again, he he was very careful with his language, so he wasn't suggesting that the Goodman Group was one of those. Um, But he also noted that the double tax agreement that we have with Luxembourg, that's going to be updated in November. Uh, Just briefly, the double tax agreement uh, prevents people paying tax in in two jurisdictions. Um, It's going to be updated through a process... uh, being led by the OECD. Um, uh, and as I say, so that'll be updated by November at the latest. We are, in the meantime, updating some other double tax agreements, but that Luxembourg one will be updated by November. Okay. Now, a number of top jobs in European Union institutions uh, effectively up for grabs uh, at the minute. And there was a lot of uh, horse trading going on during the week to find a new president of the European Commission and uh, a new head of the European Central Bank. And a, a little bit left field, a little bit last minute, uh, Christine Lagarde of uh, the IMF, 
um, a French, uh, a senior French uh, politician. Um, she has uh, come into the frame and it looks as if she's going to take up the role, um, surprisingly. Yeah, that's right. She had 18 months to go on her, her IMF contract mm. um, uh, and she appears to have been doing well there. But um, she has been nominated, rightly, as you say, uh, as the next head of the European Central Bank. She's now stood aside from the IMF uh, as, as, as a result of this, as the process continues. Um, there's, there are some interesting facets to this particular appointment. There's some Germany had its eye on this role, didn't they? They did, they did. And, I, and as you mentioned there, there was horse trading uh, that had to go on. I suppose th- there is some suggestion that this works for Angela Merkel and it works for President Macron. For Macron, mainly because he has a presidential election coming up in 2022 and Christine Lagarde was touted as one of the people who may have gone for that. And similarly, it works for Angela Merkel because Ursula von der Leyen uh, is now not in the way of her uh, yeah. preferred successor. So it, it works for them. What What is interesting about it, however, is this notion of independence at the ECB seems to be ever, political independence, I should say, at the ECB seems to be slightly undermined because you have Louis de Guindos coming in as the vice uh, president, uh, of course, a former Spanish finance minister and Christine Lagarde, formerly a French finance minister. Um, so that that is... That is an interesting, uh, that, that makes the, the appointment all the more interesting. Um, but there could be something a little bit more sinister behind it uh, in terms of President Macron and his thinking towards the next election. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean... And that Christine Lagarde would have been considered, uh, I don't know whether she had it in her mind or not, but some commentators would have considered her a political, uh, possible opponent to Macron uh, next time around. Absolutely. In 20, and now she's out of the race. In 2022, he has put her out of the race. Mm. It has worked, it's worked very well in his favour. So it is a smart... Well, she's obviously taken up this role. She's happy to take up the role. I mean, she's absolutely. not being press ganged into it. No, no, <laughs> no, absolutely. And it, it's, a, it's a very prestigious role for her to take up. I suppose what, what's also interesting about her appointment is that she's not an economist. Yeah. Uh, she, But she has other very significant skills, such as managerial roles and, and diplomatic uh, skills. But because of her lack of experience in uh, economics, that will undoubtedly increase the importance of Philip Lane's role uh, as as chief economist in in the European Central Bank. Okay. Now, a lot uh, said and uh, by Donald Trump around uh, tariffs, uh, mostly uh, in terms of the trade war with China. Um, but he's also proposing tariffs against European countries. And Ireland, it turns out, uh, could be among the hardest hit. That's right. Uh, the, the yeah. So. There are a number of well. First of all, it's it's worth starting uh, from the beginning, as it were. Um, the the US is planning on imposing these tariffs as a result uh, of what it alleges to be EU aircraft subsidies on on Airbus planes. So, IBEC econ- chief economist Jared Brady has crunched the numbers on this, and he's come to the conclusion that Ireland is by far the most exposed on a per capita basis mm. among the 28 European countries. And this is largely because of our whis- whiskey exports. Exactly. So uh, our whiskey exports, of which we export about 400 million to the US every yeah. year, they are very much exposed and they could be in line for tariffs. We don't know what the number is yet, but they are on this list uh, mm. that that has been put what out by the US this? Trade Representative. So other things on the list are cheese, whey, olives, coffee, uh, ham. And so we can see that he is targeting specific Places Spain is is targeted for its cured meats. France and Italy for their their cheeses and and us and the UK. The UK will be the hardest hit by this as a result of their Scotch whiskey. So 
it's kind of it's 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 very clear what's being targeted here, and we could suffer, or All at right. least rather, our whiskey industry could suffer. You mentioned the Mercosur deal uh, earlier. Mm. Uh, might there be some benefit from Irish whiskey out of that? There, there could well be, and I think the whiskey industry. Well, they were slightly ambivalent, but they said that the the, the spirits industry in general said that Brazil could be a big prize for Ireland here. Pat Rigney, uh, the the founder of the Shed Distillery, which owns and sells gunpowder. Um, or Drumshambo Gunpowder Irish Gin uh, they said Brazil could be a big prize here uh, Paraguay and Uruguay not so much uh, but Brazil uh, could be a big market for them so while they may lose in the US uh, there could be opportunities elsewhere Alright and quickly we'll close with Press Up um, it's a big hospitality group it's got operations right across Dublin people will know it, Union Cafe mm. Elephant and Castle Stella Cinema and so forth they've got a number of hotels as well they've been busy again on the hotel front tell us about that Peter. Yeah the, the ever expanding Press Up they've lodged plans to almost double the bedroom capacity in the Clarence Hotel which is so co-owned Bono and the Edge that's right well they own the building so Press Up now have the leasehold there and Paddy McKillen and Senior exactly the father of Paddy McKillen Junior who, who, who runs the company with Matt Ryan um, so they put in permission for an additional 54 bedrooms uh, you might remember back in the good old days there was a plan to redesign the Clarence at a cost of 150 million uh, that fell to the wayside as a result of the recession so here it is again it will be expanded over the next door dollar which Press Up, Press Up owns uh, and the fit up fit out of the rooms is expected to take about a year uh, pending planning permission but continued expansion uh, at, a, at an interesting time in the economic cycle so it, it'll be interesting to see where they go Yeah, Are you a fan of their venues? I, I suppose Are you a I, customer? I'm uh, as the spirits industry on the Mercosur deal. I'm uh, ambivalent. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. I'm sure Matt Ryan and uh, Paddy McKillen Jr. will be delighted to hear that, <laughs> Peter. All right, Peter. As always, thank you for that. Thanks. And now we're going to take a short break. When we return, I'll be talking to Owen Burke Kennedy and Colm McQuilla of Davy about the latest data on the Irish economy. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free in iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, preparations for Budget 2020 in October are well underway. Last week, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Dunahoo, presented the Summer Economic Statement, outlining the scenarios in the event of a no-deal Brexit and indicating that tax cuts will be off the table under such a scenario. This week, myhome.ie and Davy published data on house prices showing that the growth in prices nationally continues to soften, while asking prices year-on-year year in Dublin might actually be in retreat. On Tuesday from the CSO, we got jobless figures, uh, a rate of 4.5%, which many commentators take as near full employment. And exchequer figures showed healthy returns from corporation tax, albeit with government spending in certain areas on the rise. So what are we to make of it all? Joining me in studio are Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times and Colin McQuilla, Chief Economist with Davy Stockbrokers, Gem, and you're both very welcome. Uh, Owen, you might just take us through some of the headline numbers in the exchequer figures which were released on Tuesday. Yeah, uh, half-year numbers always give a good indication of where we are in comparison to last year. Mm. So they paint a pretty, a pretty rosy picture of the public Ooh, finances. Tax receipts. Well, uh, yeah, I suppose you could say that um, the government collected around twenty-six point seven billion in taxes in the first six months, which is up seven percent, one point seven billion on last year. Uh, now that's slightly below target, but the targets are difficult for the government to pin down. But the the big metric is that they're up quite substantially on last year. Um, again, income tax, which accounts for about forty percent of receipts. 
uh, 10.5 billion, up 7.7% from last year. And interestingly enough, that was still below target. And there has been a, a, another acceleration employment growth at the beginning of the year. It hasn't probably translated yet into the income tax figures. But uh, analysts have been watching corporation tax like Hawks because we're in the middle of a massive corporation tax boom. And there's been a lot of questions about whether the tide will soon go out. And, mm. Top uh, 10 billion last year for the first time. Top 10 billion, was. which you know, is nearly twice what it was as recently as 2015. So in May, there was a kind of slight dip in receipts, but May isn't a big uh, business tax month. So uh, June, uh, it's come good again. It's still below target, but it's up on last year, up 3.5% at 4.2 billion, which means we're in line for another record year if things continue. So um, the other main tax heads, uh, VAT, again, below target, but up significantly 5% on last year, uh, suggesting that there's no uh, real problem on the retail side. And then the other uh, big area of tax was excise duty, which is again up on last year. So at the moment... Yeah, they're all also increased on the spending side. Uh, walk us through those. Yeah, the increase on the spending side, uh, I'll just get the the overall spending figure uh, is uh, total voted expenditure is $25 billion, which is up 6% year on year, but still inside the government's budget. Now, everyone's looking at the health side mm. of this. And there's, being, there's a sort of dispute now about what uh, level of accounting we should actually follow. The government's exchequer figures puts health spending at $8.4 billion for the six months inside budget. Um, now, that uh, that comes about amid reports that there was a big overspend in May. And in a separate set of figures, uh, the health spending seems to be a, a little bit nearer its ceiling than it is in these figures. So the exchequer returns paints a reasonably OK picture of health. But uh, on the HSE accounting measures, it seems to be a little bit further on. So it's difficult to know where we are at this stage. But it looks like it probably won't be as bad as last year, where there was a 600 million overrun. Yeah. Uh, Conan, what's your take on health spending? Um, well, it's up 8% in the first half of the year and, you know, the plan was to have it grow by 7. Um, and this has happened in previous years where apparently all the growth, this really strong growth comes in the first half of year, in the year and the plan is that it kind of gets under control and is brought back in in the second half and that hasn't happened uh, for many years and a cynical view might be that um, it's deliberately done to avoid headlines about overspending and indeed the Irish Times had a very nice uh, leak, it appears, from the Department of Expenditure and Reform saying that they didn't believe uh, the profile for health spending either. So I suspect by the end of the year, the um, 8% growth is on the first half will be probably repeated, if anything, in the second half. And that will have an extra little bit of growth. Uh, but ultimately, you know, these extra spending increases are unplanned. Um, 8% is an enormous increase. And there appears to be no slowdown in health spending. So, um, you know, I really ask serious questions about um, the ability of the government to control expenditure. And remember, the plan for next year is that overall current expenditure will only grow by 2.5%, uh, which is a very, very small increase. And we'll Pascal, see what happens in budget, you know, at the budget. Pascal Lunny, who has this nickname, Prudent Pascal, um, does it ring hollow uh, to a degree when you think of the overruns in the National Children's Hospital? The National Broadband Plan, the prices of that seems to be out of control. Uh, we had the Irish Water tobacco some years ago. Well, I don't think a budget, budget 2019, had a 6% increase in overall expenditure penciled in. Um, I don't think you consider that to be prudent. Um, I understand the Minister has a lot of political constraints. We all remember the extraordinary um, noise that was made last year when he considered increasing the VAT rate mm. on tourism. So... I suppose we live in an era when the minister changes the, public, the the budget, anyone who's sort of adversely affected, not only 
says they're financially worse off, but take the social media say to say that their you know self esteem is being affected as well. So uh, in this area, it seems very very difficult. You need to ask yourself: Is it going? You know, can we politically uh, run substantial surpluses? Are we going to run surpluses of one two billion uh, per annum to help get the debt ratio down? Uh, certainly, the central bank and others believe that at around 105% gross national income, there's a lot more work to do. Uh, and, of course, then we've got the sort of threats of Brexit, global corporation tax uh, changes. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think if it was me, I certainly would prefer to run more substantial deficits or surpluses. Uh, you know, many other voices have said that too. Implementing that politically is um, a much a more difficult... Yeah, sure. Now, in the summer economic statement, the government said that... Um, they would have seven hundred million to spend on new measures in the October budget, and would run a surplus of zero point four percent of GDP in twenty twenty. If there is an orderly Brexit, in the event of a No Deal Brexit, that surplus would turn into a deficit in the region of half uh, a percent to one and a half percent of GDP next year, and there could be up to fifty thousand jobs at risk of a No Deal Brexit. And of course, we have the hustings going on in the Conservative leadership uh, campaign, and both Boris Johnson and uh, Jeremy Hunt are saying that, you know, uh, if we're out by October 31st and if there needs to be a no-deal, we'll follow that path. Um, that's true. I think if there was a no-deal, the impact on the exchequer would probably be much more substantial than a deficit of a half percent of GDP or one and a half percent of GDP. What do you think it would be? Um, well, I'm not going to put a single number on it, but, um, you know, I think you see these estimates that maybe Irish GDP growth could flatline. I think a recession would be, you know, quite likely. Um, the kind of estimates that are out there are based on macroeconomic models where you put tariffs in there and you say, um, you know, what that might do to Irish exports. or um, uh, But really the impact could be much more severe. You know, the housing market in Britain falling over, you know, falls in asset prices that kind of lead companies to depress or to cut back on investment spending and employment. And as well as that, the whole legal regulatory basis for Irish-UK trade effectively ev- evaporate, evaporating overnight. So that's not something people can put into their statistical models when, you know, Irish beef exports might be... Um, Subject to enormous tariffs, but not only that, but you'll have the, you know, if the health standards around those exports and the sort of regulation around that just disappearing overnight. But I think Brexit, a hard deal Brexit would be something that's very nasty and sharp and would hurt us very badly, but that's precisely why it probably still won't happen. That ultimately a fudge will be found to um, keep, if not the UK inside the EU, but at least keep them inside the uh, single market. And Pascal who has said that a no-deal Brexit will cost 50,000 jobs. Does that sound about right to you? Well, it depends over the time period. I'm sure that's probably over two years or so. If we saw jobs growth flatline rather than grow by 2 3% per annum, it might be, you know, could argue it would be certainly more than that. Um, but again, these sound like very severe scenarios, and they are, but I think that's probably why they're very unlikely to materialise. Right. Now, with booming revenues, people might think, let's presume that Brexit goes okay, there is a deal. And we don't have that hard uh, exit by the UK from the European Union. So in that event, people might think, well, hold on, there's booming tax revenues, corporation tax through the roof and so forth. Why aren't we getting tax cuts? Uh, well, absolutely. And <laughs> I suspect we may still get tax cuts uh, in October. But 700 um, million isn't an awful lot. It's not going to deliver very much by way I think that's about 350 million to cut the top rate of tax by uh, one percentage point. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room. I suspect we'll see a few tax rises in the budget, perhaps the carbon tax. Uh, increasing that could raise maybe 200 million. Um, so it might be an, an element of taking one hand to give back with the other. Um, but, you know, the big issue here is, are we going to run these surpluses of one, two billion to get the debt level down? Um, I'd be sceptical given the sort of political clamour for spending increases of various kinds uh, and tax cuts as well. And the fact that we have a general election holding uh, into probably in the next six, nine months. 
now he has said he's going to put aside what 500 million a year into a, a rainy day fund what's wrong with that is that um, not enough uh, well, that's 500 million. You know, we have quite large cash balances in any case, um, over 10 billion, I think, at this particular point in time. So the NCMA is forward funded, you know, done a lot of long term debt issuance. We have, you know, billions of cash actually yeah. at hand to make sure that we're funded at least 12 months in advance. So the rainy day fund, to some extent, it's taking cash from one government account and putting it into another. Um, you know, I think the issue is we're running. Broadly balanced general government balance this year. We need to increase that to maybe one, two billion. Okay, let's talk about property because you authored a report in recent days uh, in association with uh, myhome.ie, which is owned by the Irish Times, um, taking a look at house prices nationally. Shows that nationally there's a very much a softening in the kind of growth uh, we were seeing. We were seeing double digit increases, weren't we? Uh, not, not too long ago. That's uh, that's no longer the case, and that asking prices in Dublin are actually falling. It is. I think if you look back over the past 18 months, um, we saw the central bank tighten the mortgage lending rules. Uh, so less people are going to be able to get mortgages which exceeded three and a half times their income. And we know that two thirds of these exemptions uh, were in Dublin. So if anywhere was going to be squeezed first, it was going to be in Dublin. And it's particularly in the second half of 2018 when people really felt that they couldn't go to the bank and get a mortgage that exceeded three and a half times their income. The banks had to sort of look at their mortgage lending and say, well, we're just going to have to cut back. And um, that's not the case this year. Um, there should actually be more exemptions to the rule. Uh, but it's not surprising you've seen a correction in Dublin. Now, asking prices are down year and year. They are up 1.4% in the first quarter, half percent in the second. So I think that's still consistent with something that's close to zero, 1% uh, by the end of the year. Of course, with the proviso that Brexit uh, goes smoothly or we get over the October 31st deadline at least. Um but, you know, ultimately, the sort of sex and violence in the housing market is over. The days of double-digit house price growth are behind us. At the same time, we haven't allowed a bubble to emerge in mortgage lending. People are not, not out there borrowing five, six times their incomes. So as that sort of slows, there's no reason to believe that something much more pernicious or nasty is going to hit us at this time, at this particular point in time. And yet we have a housing crisis. And commentators saying, rightly, I think, that the, the wage increases that are coming through in the economy of the order to... 3% uh, are being wiped out by the rent increases um, that are being sought. Um, yeah, that's an interesting piece of analysis. If you look at the consumer price inflation rate, which is what most people use to um, measure people's real incomes or their real spending power, that CPI inflation rate is currently around 1%, actually reasonably weak by European standards. <laughs> so, you know, people can pick and choose particular items they want to focus on, be it increases in house prices or rents, but um, people buy other things as well, uh, and the CSO measure that. Um, it does pose a bigger issue around, so I suppose, competitiveness. The fact that you know foreign multinationals are not going to be, keep on employing people if there's nowhere for them to live. So we desperately need uh, to see um, more construction of apartments. Um, I think more institutional investment into um, uh, the residential sector, so to help that supply of apartments come on stream. And we shouldn't be doing anything to dissuade that. And that's obviously a very live issue at the moment. When we had just yesterday or the day before. Uh, the news that rents rose by 8.5% uh, in the 12 months to March 2019. So, uh, you know, if you're worried about the housing market, you know, the, tr the heat, I suppose, in the housing market has been tr transferred from price inflation, which is now slowing, into rents. And indeed, with, you know, those rents going up, you're seeing institutional equity uh, coming into the Irish market to buy these large apartment blocks because they can see um, it's a profitable place to um, 
hold property. Yeah, it certainly is. Oh, and the Central Bank does an annual review of these mortgage rules, uh, the macroprudential rules, as they're called. Um, and there have been calls from to loosen the income limits. Uh, I know Michael O'Flynn, the property developer, for example, cites the fact that in the UK, I think it's four and a half times your income that you can borrow, and he sees no reason why that shouldn't be the case here in Ireland. Any sense that the, there's a, a, a mood uh, to change the rules? No, I don't get any sense of that. I think uh, the central bank are you know, silently patting themselves on the back that they've kind of locked down the kind of credit issues that we had in the last decade. Um, there's no signs that the, that the rules are going to be loosened. I don't know if Connell would agree with that. But um, a big kind of circle that has to be squared is that, you know, the government and the, the population seem, uh, you know, wanting that the policies will increase affordability. And uh, that seems like a big, hot political issue. And yet at the other side of the equation is the central bank who are limiting credit and limiting affordability. And how that circle is going to be squared is difficult to see at this stage. I don't know what you'd... We do have a new central bank governor uh, coming in, but I'm sure he's going to want to get his feet under the table before he takes on something like changing the macroprudential rules. Indeed, and um, he's obviously had a slightly troubled time of late. So um, He has indeed, he may, with um, budget leaks in New Zealand, which have yeah, uh, caused a bit of embarrassment. For interesting him. to hear Owen say that the central bank is limiting affordability. I think that's a interesting idea you know I think if the central bank allowed everyone to borrow five times their incomes in the morning mm. what you'd see it is rampant house price inflation there'll be no extra houses out there to be bought um, so I think what the central bank is doing is limiting leverage mm. and the reason houses are unaffordable is because just there isn't enough of them out there and then you can make the argument that you know land prices you know are very expensive and mm. um, that maybe productivity in the construction sector needs to come down perhaps even wage costs in the construction need to come down we need to do more to attract construction sector workers into Ireland to build the next uh, generation of houses. So if you look at, say, the UK, you know, people can borrow four and a half times their income now. They used to limit that to about three times in the 1980s. And what we saw in the 1980s is that the UK actually built more houses in the 1970s and the 1980s than it's done over the past 15, 20 years. So look, it must be very frustrating for people who are out there and they can see a house worth €350,000 in Dublin and, and they're saying if they could only borrow a little bit more, they could afford that house. But they need to remember everyone else in the queue, would also be able to borrow more. And what would happen is that the price well, they are limiting uh, purchasing, maybe, is a better way of saying it. And perhaps limiting people getting on the, you know, housing ladder. So that seems to be something the government wants to encourage. And there, there are lots of moving parts to this, because if, if you look at some of these uh, first-time houses, for example, you mentioned the institutional landlords that have come into the market over the last uh, number of years, quite a few of them now. And they're they're mopping up a lot of units that would otherwise uh, have gone towards the first time buyer market. Um, I, I can take one example where Karen Holmes has sold some uh, properties in City West, for example, um, which would have gone to the first time uh, buyer market, and they're now in the rental market. Well, look, I think stepping back from this, the first thing is that if you look at this, what's really plagued the Irish housing market over the past ten years has been a lack of equity in home builders. They can't finance their own development. Um, they're going to the banks. The banks are rightly conservative. And you have this equity now coming into the market, helping to facilitate building. So in that particular case, you know, but without the equity there, without an institutional buyer, these apartment blocks may not be built at all. Karen Holmes has loads of equity. Well, that's it's, it's raised a, a bundle of cash from that, the market. That's one particular transaction. But if you look at it over the next 20 years, let's say, the population in Ireland is forecast to grow by about 18 to 23% between 2016 and uh, 2036, that's going to require a large expansion of the private rented sector. Now, what we did in the Celtic Tiger era is that we fueled buy-to-let mortgage lending. Uh, so, you know, there's two choices with 
expanding the private rental sector. It can be small-time investors, small-time landlords who uh, can own the properties, or it can be institutional equity who provide a professional service and can actually encourage the supply by forward-funding builders doing forward purchases. Uh, so I think that's something we should be um, encouraging. And if you look at, say, the Irish rental market, what's very clear about it is that opposed to say, as opposed to, say, Germany, where there's you know a lot of large-scale landlords, where there's more renting is a much more prevalent form of tenure. In Ireland, the private rented sector has got a lot of, a lot of small uh, landlords where um, in many cases, as is quite clear from this week's uh, Residential Tenancies Board data, rents increased by 8.5% in Dublin, despite the fact that 4% um, uh, rent controls are in place, which suggests that many of these, these small landlords... these new schemes are outside of those rent controls, aren't they? Uh, they are initially when they set the market mm-hmm. rent, but after that, um, they're constrained in the same way. But again... These professional landlords, institutional uh, owners of property, they abide by the law and they operate in many markets where there's rent controls. What we've seen in Ireland over the past two years is that it's the small-time landlords who are finding ways to circumvent the rules. So let's say Guy Res Reid, for example, increased and in, reported in its annual results that increased its average rent by 3.7% uh, last year. Well, in Dublin, rents increased through 2018 by 8%. So... If people are looking for where rents are going more aggressively, it's amongst the smaller landlords who are finding uh, one way or another to circumvent the 4% rent control rule. So, you know, I think we need to have a very much more mature look at how you want to expand the private rented sector. Should that be true, um, you know, the private rented sector, should it be through buy-to-let mortgage lending or should it, by, should it be by encouraging um, institutional investment, professionally run um, purchases of these large apartment blocks in the city centre? You've been compiling this uh, house price data now for some time with my home. What, what's your view on the trend that's at play here? Where where are prices likely to go over the next 12 months? Um, in Dublin particularly. Well, Dublin or nationally. Uh, I think, look, the, you, leverage has in leverage in the mortgage market has effectively maxed out at this point versus the rule. So really the na- natural anchor is wage growth, which is running sort of 3 4%. Uh, uh, within Dublin, when we look at the asking price data, it's very much the top end of the market. So if you look at uh, transactions above €500,000 in Dublin in the first four months of the year, they're down 12% compared with last year. If you look between €300,000 to €400,000, they're up 18.5%. So it's clear where the money is going. It's going where things are more affordable. You're seeing home builders increasingly build uh, smaller units um, to sort of cater for that affordability issue. Um, So, uh, you know, I think when you look at the Dublin market, this is not a crash, I think, necessarily, unless... Brexit or the global economy rolls over. Um, but as long as the global economy does well, as long as Brexit goes uh, without causing a major upset, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see a major decline in house prices. Uh, on the help to buy scheme, which uh, helps first-time buyers try and get on the property ladder, that's due to expire this year. Any sense that the government might extend it? Well, I would have thought the opposite. I think when it first came on stream, there was a lot of suggestions that it was another kind of demand-side issue that was just going to fan prices uh, at the expense of, of uh, potential buyers. But uh, I don't know if Connell agrees with this, but there does seem to be a lot of um, sort of positive talk about it now in, internally in Leicester House and externally. So I would say it's likely to be extended. I think I'd agree with that entirely. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, coming into an election year, taking a grant away from home buyers who sort of see it as mm. facilitating them buying homes is not a particular vote winner. So I suspect it will be retained. Uh, one way or the other. There's been a lot of speculation that uh, supply of homes won't really be able to exceed 25,000. I, I don't know what Connell thinks of that and, and where the supply issue will 
meat price and, and what's the effect? I think that's uncertain. We don't know. But there is definitely a capacity constraint coming up. So if you look at, say, your apartment planning permissions, about 10,000 units granted permission over the last 12 months. I think there's no way they'll be built versus the 2,000 that were completed last year. And what's probably happening is that, again, you have developers looking at institutional equity that are willing to fund these developments, but perhaps the developers don't have that track record of um, delivery uh, to partner up with sort of a very professional uh, outside fund which is looking to invest and, you know, with the counterparty risk, um, you know, making that transaction work uh, may be very, very difficult. And, of course, underlying that is the fact that there's just a lack of construction workers. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think the capacity constraints will see where they go. Um, I don't wouldn't rule out entirely that we might build 25,000 units. I think some of the commentary sort of underplays the role of um, one-off housing and maybe is very Dublin-centred. Uh, but capacity constraints are coming and, you know, we need to be doing things like attracting construction workers from abroad, um, you know, that kind of thing to sort of relieve those capacity constraints. All right, finally, I'll ask you both, um, what are we likely to see in Budget 2020? What should we expect? Don't start with you. Oh, that's a big question. Um, you know, Con said earlier on that we have 700 million of a sort of, uh, you know, a budget day kind of, on um, signed package at the moment if you do a kind of two to one spending ratio that gives you what 260 million for tax cuts um, and as Con said earlier what's a 350 million to reduce the top rate by one percent reduce the top rate anyway it's got to be it's got to be uh, allocated towards yeah. the lower end of the market yeah. and we're still waiting for the minister even said this afternoon that he's going to make a decision on his kind of twin tra- track uh, Brexit approach in September when he sees who's elected uh, over in the UK and what sort of uh, reaction his election will uh, elicit from Europe so all of it's a bit up in the air but um, judging from previous years we're going to have some sort of minimal uh, tax break, which will be probably spun way too positively, and uh, a continuation of the same. Okay, Colin. Yeah, I think an over, another overrun in health spending. Um, I guess, would imagine on balance, the car- carbon tax will probably be implemented this year with some other tax cuts to offset that. Um, and um, you know, the Taoiseach thing is already on record as sort of saying rather than having spending grow by sort of six seven percent, it might be three four percent uh, by the time the, the budget finishes off. Um, but of course, the big elephant in the room is Brexit on October 31st, and we'll see what happens there. Okay, we'll know all in three months' time. Uh, my thanks to Umber Kennedy and Colin McCullough. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Umber Kennedy, and Colin McQuilla. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.